Welcome to another thrilling episode on Book TV. But before we dive in, let's talk about enhancing your reading experience with novel nutrition. As you lose yourself in today's story, imagine supporting your journey with our unique supplements, specially crafted for readers like you. Whether it's boosting focus with Epic, unwinding with Read, or energizing with Zip Strips, Novel Nutrition is here to complement each chapter of your literary adventure. Visit NovelNutrition.co or click the link in the show notes, and don't forget to use code BOOKTV for an exclusive 20% discount. Now, let's immerse ourselves in the magic of today's story. National Burden, a patriotic thriller, by C.G. Cooper. Narrated by David Colacci. Chapter 1 San Pedro Plantation Resort, Riviera Maya, 1.30 p.m., February 15th. The resort was new. In fact, it wasn't even open to the public yet. Mexican laborers could still be heard pounding away, rushing to finish before the hoped-for spring break rush. He was staying with an old friend, a buddy who'd recently taken a cruel turn constantly hounding him, concocting new schemes, pushing him further than before. Their stay was a favor from a new contact, a wealthy donor who happened to be a developer that owned properties all over coastal Mexico and wanted to attract high-end clientele from the States. They wouldn't be bothered in the elegantly appointed private penthouse on the edge of the resort. It was probably only seventy degrees, but to the man sitting in the white plastic chair, the kind that were supposed to be high-end but felt like they would break with slightest movement, the temperature felt stifling. His senses were on edge, catching the whir of the air conditioning, the flip of the overhead fan, the light step of his captor. You failed. Santos Lockwood squirmed in his seat the fabric of his patterned board shorts suddenly clinging to his legs. It's not my fault. I tried to keep my job and do what you planned. The man at the window turned, casting a shadow across his perfectly tanned face. I can understand how the last president's departure was not your fault, but I can't understand why you couldn't make yourself useful to Zimmer. Lockwood looked up at his old friend, the annoyingly good-looking, always-quaffed Republican congressman from Florida, Antonio McKnight. Come on, Tony. It happens every time a new administration comes in. Out with the old, in with the new. It was bound to happen sometime. He added a nervous chuckle, hoping his friend would lighten up. Tony McKnight put a hand on his trim stomach and closed his eyes. Yes, that happens when there's a normal turnover, but Zimmer took over abruptly when your old boss abdicated the throne. From what I hear, Zimmer hasn't cleaned house, so don't feed me your line of bullshit. I've bailed you out more than once, Santos. McKnight's steel-blue eyes flared open. It felt to Lockwood like they were burning a hole in his forehead. I got you that fucking job. You've always been a fuck-up, even in college. 
If it wasn't for me, you wouldn't have made it out of Florida State with a diploma. As quickly as his temper burst, it melted away with the tropical air, blown by the seventy-degree breeze whirring the scent of the newly constructed condo. Now tell me why I should even listen to you. Lockwood gritted his crooked teeth. He'd always played second fiddle to his playboy friend, but he wasn't without his worth. Lockwood thought back to the night spent tracking down his freshman roommate, finally finding him stumbling home from yet another girl's dorm room as the sun peeked over the horizon, nursing him back to health, dragging him to class. He'd been the one to ensure McKnight's diploma, not the other way around. McKnight's moves and cunning improved with age. He was always hungry, and it eventually landed him a Republican congressional seat in Miami. Lockwood was the liberal, but their half-Hispanic heritage and their history always pulled them together. I don't know what to say. I... Tell me what you want me to say. Congressman McKnight shook his head. Wrong answer, Santos. A shrill whistle from McKnight's lips caused a side door to open. Two deeply tanned Mexicans entered the room, faces placidly menacing, almost bored. You remember my cousins, Felix and Miguel? The blood drained from Lockwood's face. What are they doing here? Antonio McKnight flashed the brilliant smile that had captured many a young girl's heart and now captivated much of conservative America. Like a diamond expertly crafted by an aged jeweler, Tony looked confident, composed, and powerful with his perfectly tailored clothes and talk. Half white and half Hispanic, a man trapped between both worlds, plagued by his past yet using it to propel him forward. Rather than wallowing in his history, McKnight used it to feed his increasing hunger for power. Insatiable. He'd seen the stare from the unmarried congressman before. Predatory. To Lockwood it looked more like a wolf preparing to strike, stalking its prey. McKnight nodded to the two cousins, supposedly his cousins, but Santos Lockwood knew differently. Hired thugs, murderers. Before he could react, they had his arms pinned to the glass table. Let me go, he yelled, panicking, a trickle of pee turning into a stream running down his leg. Neither man flinched, faces remaining expressionless. McKnight moved to the wet bar. Now, the way I see it, normally there's a time for forgiveness and a time for lessons. This may be a time for both. Sweat poured from Lockwood's gray forehead. Please, Tony, please don't kill me. He knew what his old pal was capable of. The friendly facade that the public knew masked a ruthless personality, chiseled and hammered into a vessel of power. His twisted youth had turned him into a duplicitous monster, Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. McKnight laughed, turning back to the trio, now holding a long fillet knife in his right hand. 
If I wanted to kill you, you'd already be dead. He admired the blade, caressing its length with his index finger. You had a very simple job. Stay close to the president. Did you do that? No. But here's what's going to happen. I'm going to give you one last shot, and only because I love you like a brother and your mom was always nice to me. But if you fail me this time, if you once again forget everything I've done for you and for your family... The wicked grin on McKnight's face left little doubt in Santos Lockwood's mind. What had happened to the affable kid he'd met that first sunny day of school in Tallahassee? Lockwood's shoulders slumped and his chin dropped to his chest. Tell me what you want me to do. I'll tell you that later. Lockwood's head snapped up at the feel of another grip on his hand. It was McKnight's. Right now I need to give you an excuse and a lesson. Without warning, the razor-sharp knife bit into Lockwood's fingers, sawing with excruciating accuracy. The smile never left the congressman's face. Even as his friend screamed, he sliced away, one finger gone already, blood spraying unceremoniously across the table, accompanied by the wild cackle of his friend. There's a secret once hidden, a treasure the ancients used daily. It's turmeric, the golden spice of life. In the heart of ancient India, this revered root was more than a culinary delight. It was a symbol of purity, a source of wellness. Novel Nutrition brings this secret to you with our fire supplement. Each fire gummy is a nod to those ancient traditions, harnessing the natural powerful anti-inflammatory and antioxidant benefits that have supported health and vitality for centuries. Nab your supply of Novel Nutrition's Fire by clicking the link in the description and using code BOOKTV for a 20% discount. Read more. Live more. Be more. Chapter 2 Stoke Security International, SSI, Headquarters, Camp Spartan, Arrington, Tennessee, 9.29 a.m., February 27th. The majority owner of Stokes Security International, Calvin Stokes Jr., adjusted himself in the leather desk chair, realizing his butt had gone numb. He'd been at it since 4.30 a.m., all thanks to the grief his cousin Travis Hayden, SSI's CEO and a former SEAL, had given him a week before for not staying on top of his administrative duties. Cal hated anything that had the word admin in it. The Marine infantryman in him wanted to be out at the range or in the live firehouse honing his skills. He felt those skills melting away as he perused yet another profit and loss statement. He knew it was pointless thinking about it. February had been one of the coldest in Tennessee history, and SSI had closed all non-essential facilities for three days running. Being cooped up in an office grated on his every nerve as he sat behind his father's old desk. Cal glanced at the picture of him and his father, 
both wearing matching orange University of Virginia shirts. It was taken on Cal's first day at UVA, right after they'd unpacked everything in his new Humphreys dorm room. He loved the picture for many reasons, but mostly because of how his father had been that day. The former Marine colonel wasn't known for being overly emotional, but on that day Calvin Stokes Sr. had cried, more out of pride than of sorrow, for his son's accomplishments. If he looked closely at the photo, Cal could see the tinge of red in his father's eyes. He missed his parents deeply and kept their memory close at hand. Don't tell me you liked all this paperwork, Dad. His father, though an officer, was a grunt as well, leading Marines for almost twenty years. There wasn't much the former Marine staff sergeant wouldn't have done to see his father one more time. As he reached for another folder, his office door opened. Former Marine Master Sergeant Willie Trent, a beast of a man just shy of a hulking seven feet, poked his head in. You decent? Cal smiled. Come on in, Top. I was getting ready to take a break. Trent stepped into the office and whistled when he saw the thick stacks of reports on his friend's desk. What's all this? Some stuff Trav wants me to get familiar with. I guess I've been putting it off long enough. Master Sergeant Trant's laugh came straight from his belly. He pointed a finger at Cal. They finally got you, Cal. They're turning you into a rear echelon motherfucker. Cal's eyes narrowed as he gave his friend the finger. Fuck you, Top. He said it with a smile and stood up from his desk. You want to get a couple rounds in? I'll tie one arm behind my back, asked Trent. Cal Stokes could take down most men in hand-to-hand combat, but he'd never bested Trent on the mats. They sparred regularly, always with the same outcome. The black marine with the NFL lineman's physique won. Why not? This stuff can wait. An hour and five submissions later, Cal was dripping in sweat. He'd almost locked Trent in an armbar once, but the crafty Marine had slipped out of it with practiced ease. I'm spent. Want to grab an early lunch? Master Sergeant Trent wiped his obsidian brow with a towel. Yeah. How about we call up a couple of the boys and have them join us? One of the secrets to SSI's success was the tight-knit relationships of its men. Even a lot of the guys in tech and development came from the military, led by the genius world-class hacker and vice president of R&D, Neil Patel. They were the best of the best, patriots to the core. They stayed because they were well cared for and because of the feeling of family, first instilled by Cal's father and now carried on by him and his cousin. There wasn't a thing any of SSI's leaders would ask their men to do that they hadn't done themselves. Leadership by example. Cal stopped the snow from his boots before stepping into the cafeteria. 
It was one of many modern yet spartan facilities built on the 2,000-odd-acre SSI campus. There was the lodge, the VIP quarters with the rustic log cabin facade, its interior spanning thousands of square feet. The headquarters and support buildings were clustered in a simple grid, allowing each division privacy, much like military regiments and battalions. Again, yet another piece of Colonel Stokes's vision. The chow hall was nearly empty, most employees opting to stay home. Laughter directed Cal and Trent to their friends. A slightly portly man with glasses, Dr. Alvin Higgins, was telling a story to the rest of the bunch. Dr. Higgins was SSI's in-house shrink and expert interrogator. Originally on loan from the CIA, Higgins was now a permanent fixture at SSI. He looked more like an English professor, but he'd proven himself time after time with SSI's operators. They knew him and trusted him completely. The men at the table turned as the two Marines approached. "'Would you look at what the snow blew in?' said a squat, almost burly man with his beard neatly tied in twin braids. "'Shouldn't you be somewhere closer to the equator, Gaucho?' asked Master Sergeant Trent. "'Last time you saw snow, you almost froze your little Mexican ass off.' "'Hey, Thop, can you blame me?' Trent walked up behind Gaucho and picked him up in a bear hug. The tough Hispanic squirmed as the others laughed. The Marine and former Delta soldier were relentless in their ribbing. Cal often wondered whether other than in the military or at SSI, two men with such different backgrounds could become best friends. There were three others at the table— Neil Patel was SSI's head of technology and development. The Indian-American was the smartest man most of them had ever met. He kept SSI at the forefront of the world's technological advances while also bringing in millions of dollars from licensing newly developed inventions. Always the most stylish man in the room, today Neil had opted for a pink and aqua checkered shirt and a pair of white pants. Not exactly what you might call appropriate for the weather, but Neil wasn't a field guy. The other man sitting next to Neil was SSI's head of internal security. Todd Dunn was a former Army Ranger and Travis Hayden's right hand. The brawny yet brainy Sentinel sat smiling but didn't say much. The last man pointed to the seat next to him, motioning Cal over. Daniel Briggs kept his shoulder-length blonde hair in a neat ponytail. The former Marine sniper was to Cal Stokes what Dunn was to SSI's CEO. If Cal went anywhere, Daniel was with him. Part bodyguard, part advisor, part guardian angel, Daniel had become one of Cal's closest friends despite their short acquaintance. There had been more than one occasion where the dead, calm sniper the men called Snake Eyes had saved Cal's life. Everyone took their seats as Cal joined Trent to grab some food. As the unofficial head of food services, Trent inspected the line with a practiced eye. A new line cook looked on nervously. 
Looks good today, Vince, said Trent. Thanks, Master Sergeant. I used the bread pudding recipe you showed me. I think it turned out pretty good. Trent took a spoonful of the bread pudding in his mouth, chewing slowly. Not bad. Not bad at all. The line cook smiled proudly. As he took his seat, Cal asked, Where's Travis? Dunn spoke up for the first time. He and the Hammer flew to D.C. The Hammer was SSI's sole female employee, Marge Haynes. As the company's lead attorney, Haynes had attained the moniker by destroying opposition in and out of the courtroom, as well as on the training mats. Haynes was not only brilliant and beautiful, she was also a black belt in three martial arts disciplines. She could go toe-to-toe with the best that SSI had. Cal's eyebrow rose. He didn't tell me about that. What's up? President Zimmer wanted to talk to him about something, said Dunn. And you didn't go with him? The question obviously struck a nerve, as the normally unflappable Dunn scowled slightly. He said he wanted me to keep an eye on things here. Cal let it go, not wanting to annoy Dunn further. The group spent the rest of their meal listening to more new tales from Dr. Higgins's time with the agency. Chapter 3 The White House 12.56 p.m. February 27th the normal buzz of activity vibrated around them as they made their way to the heart of the American government. There seemed to be an added level of tension thrown into the mix, a huff here or a withdrawn look there. The White House staff looked tired, exhausted, actually. It shouldn't have been a surprise what with the recent upheaval within the presidency. Any time you change leadership— and especially if the change involved scandalous tidings, there's sure to be more than enough bedlam to go around. Travis Hayden, attired in a gray suit, sans tie, stepped into the Oval Office, Marge Haynes on his heels. I'm sorry we're late, Mr. President. The weather almost kept us from getting here. President Brandon Zimmer, a Democrat from Massachusetts, now sporting a line of gray hair he hadn't had months before, stepped from behind his desk. In his mid-thirties, the bachelor who had become president overnight was considered by the world as one of the newest, most eligible. With near-movie star good looks and a political pedigree that spanned back decades, Zimmer reminded many of Jack Kennedy. "'Come on, Trav.' You know you can still call me Brandon. Their handshake turned into a brotherly embrace. What can I say? I'm a little awed by your new digs. Zimmer rolled his eyes, knowing the former seal well. Not much awed Travis Hayden, except maybe the woman standing next to him. Miss Haynes, it's a pleasure to see you again. Thank you, Mr. President. Not you, too, the President laughed, 
and directed them to the couches in front of the roaring fireplace. They exchanged pleasantries as they got situated. Now up to speed, Zimmer said, I'll bet you're wondering why I asked you to come. Travis and Marge nodded, both having made certain assumptions on the flight over. Travis knew his friend was in a tight spot, having landed the job in the craziest way anyone could remember. First, and I'm begging this time, please call me Brandon. I get enough ass-kissing around here. I thought it was bad when I was a lowly congressman, Zimmer exhaled. He looked drained, older. Travis couldn't imagine being thrust into the spotlight the way Zimmer had. In the span of a few months, Congressman Zimmer won his father's seat in the Senate, followed shortly by his appointment as vice president when the former VP was assassinated. As if that weren't enough, not weeks later, his predecessor, the first African-American president, resigned in a televised address to the nation, handing the reins to his vice president. To say Zimmer had been shocked would have been the understatement of the millennium. Second, I need your honest opinion. You know us. We're happy to help. Travis waited for Zimmer, who seemed to be lost in thought. After a moment, his eyes refocused. The president ran a hand through his perfectly styled hair, disheveling it slightly. I hesitated calling you. I mean, SSI has done more than its fair share of heavy lifting for me and for this country. Again, the distant gaze. You're not going to offend us, Brandon. Why don't you just tell us what's going on? Zimmer exhaled. I remember as a kid when my third grade teacher asked us what we wanted to be when we grew up. I said I wanted to be President of the United States. That sounds silly now. Seems to me that you got what you wanted, offered Travis, wondering where his friend was going with his nostalgic meandering. Worry crept into Travis's chest, something that rarely happened. Two years before, he wouldn't have cared a bit for a Democratic politician, but SSI had forged a lasting relationship with the man who is now the leader of the free world. Catastrophe and calamity had changed Brandon Zimmer. Once a vain and cocky career bureaucrat, Zimmer's eyes had opened to the realities of the world. I'm not so sure about that. Silence in the room. Marge coughed into her hand, causing the men to swivel their heads. No offense, Mr. President, but like it or not, you earned this. Call it being in the right place at the right time or dumb luck, but you're still the president. Now, I'm sure Travis will agree with me when I say that the two of us, along with the rest of Stokes Security International, are with you and are ready to help in any way we can. The president nodded, sitting a little straighter at the honest talk from the tough lawyer. You're right, of course. I'm sorry if I'm acting a little down in the mouth. It's not that I'm not grateful, but I'm surrounded by the old president's staff. I've made a little headway to build my own inner circle while trying not to step on people who had the rug ripped out from under them. 
You wouldn't believe what this has done to morale around here. Let's start with my second request. I need your honest opinion. An hour later, Travis and Marge left the Oval Office, three cabinet members taking their place as they went. Neither said a word as they passed through security or even on the cab ride to their hotel. There was plenty to be said. The level of transparency shown by the president had both impressed and shocked the SSI leaders. Their minds replayed the exchange in vivid detail, extracting bits and filing them away. After a painfully slow drive through snow-clogged streets, they made it to their hotel and stepped into one of their adjoining rooms. Travis closed the door and set his overnight bag on the floor. What do you think? Marge laughed, a hint of hysteria at the edges of it. Are you kidding? I don't know what you see in the guy. Seems like a... Stop. I know what you're going to say, and while I appreciate your dissection of Zimmer's attitude, I'd prefer to focus on what he asked us about. It looked like Marge was going to bark back. She wanted to. Okay but I need to say that he should look in the mirror and grow a pair. He's the President of the United States, for God's sake. Travis couldn't disagree. The depth of Zimmer's melancholy had surprised him. He knew Brandon Zimmer as an outgoing, confident man. Sure, he'd had a few bumps along the way, but he always came out stronger on the other side. What do you think about his question? Haynes's frown disappeared, replaced slowly by a sarcastic grin. You're serious? Tell me you're not considering it. Travis shrugged. I can't say it isn't tempting. There are obvious benefits for the company, not to mention the good it could do. I think you should talk to Cal first. You know he's not going to like it. A laugh escaped Travis's lips. You've got that right. I don't want to do it over the phone, though. He pulled his cell out of his suit pocket. Let me see if I can find us a flight home. Chapter 4 Dirksen Senate Office Building 4.05 p.m. February 27th the massive building was empty. Senators and congressmen were either hunkered down in their capital digs or already safely in their home states. Snow caked every window, casting a gray tint into hallways. A lone janitor, busy buffing the gleaming floor, nodded to Senator Milton Southgate as he walked by. Senator Southgate was a twenty-year pillar in the Senate. As Senate Majority Leader, Southgate ruled with a firm hand. Bookish in appearance, with thick glasses that had changed little since his first term, Milton Southgate led an extremely regimented life. After losing his wife years before, his obsessive tendencies intensified. For example, his aides knew to have sticky rollers on hand should a stray piece of lint appear on the senator's well-worn suit. If they didn't, 
Well, it was best not to find out. No one would necessarily call the senator a miser, but Southgate was very particular on a great number of things, perhaps the most important being timeliness. He had fired more than his share of staff for failing to be on time. Being one minute late was a crime in the Senate Majority Leader's office. His meeting was the reason he was the sole senator in the building during the snowstorm that had necessitated an emergency shutdown of the entire District of Columbia. Southgate had made an appointment, and he meant to keep it. Blizzard be damned. Fully fifteen minutes early, Senator Milton Southgate entered the reserved conference room. A patient man, despite his compulsions, Southgate took a seat at the polished table, clasping his hands across his stomach. Precisely at 4.30 p.m., Congressman Antonio McKnight entered the room. He was alone. This surprised Southgate. The young Republican was known for his entourage. This should be interesting, thought the Democrat from Arizona. He'd never met McKnight in person, but like everyone in Washington, he'd seen plenty of the handsome man on television. Senator Southgate, thank you so much for seeing me. McKnight walked around the conference table to shake hands. You said it was important. McKnight nodded, taking a seat at the head of the table. He thinks he belongs in that chair. Southgate mused. The senior senator had chosen a neutral chair in the middle of the ten-person table. Exhaling dramatically, McKnight smiled. Quite an interesting couple of months, wouldn't you say? Southgate wasn't going to give the upstart an inch. He'd learned long ago that it was better to sit and listen. Instead of answering, he nodded. I can only imagine what was going through your head when you heard about the president resigning. Were you there? asked McKnight. I was not. I was in Miami. I'm still in shock. Again, a noncommittal nod from Southgate. There was silence as the congressman gathered his thoughts. Southgate leaned forward an inch, looking over his glasses, like a schoolteacher. "'May I call you Antonio?' "'Call me Tony.' "'Antonio, I don't mean to be inhospitable, but I drove through a snowstorm to meet you. Maybe we could get to the point.' It wasn't said condescendingly. In fact, it was just the opposite— like a high school teacher patiently showing his student how to get a handle on calculus. You're right, I'm sorry. Like I said, I can only imagine how much upheaval the president's resignation has caused. My party took it in the teeth when Nixon left, leaving Ford to pick up the pieces. McKnight paused again, looking down at his hands. Now, I know we're on opposite sides of the aisle, but I think we can both agree that Zimmer, excuse me, President Zimmer, while likable, may not be the best fit to lead this country. Southgate's eyes narrowed. Why should I care what you think? 
You're talking about the President of the United States, an upstanding member of my party. McKnight's hands upturned in front of him. Come on, Senator. You probably didn't like it when a first-term congressman took over a very influential seat in the Senate. Now he's president? You can't tell me that doesn't piss you off. Once again, I fail to see why I should sit and listen to your opinion. Then Congressman Zimmer won his father's vacated seat honestly and overwhelmingly. His appointment to vice president was endorsed by both parties. He didn't choose to be president. We all saw the look on his face at the news conference. Shock, plain and simple. He's making the best of a very trying situation. Many of us have stepped forward to lend our expertise, and President Zimmer continues to be open to discussion in an extremely bipartisan manner. So I will ask you one last time, Congressman, why should I sit and let you disparage our president? Congressman Antonio McKnight placed his hands palm down on the conference table, a grin tugging at his cheek. What if I told you that Zimmer planned the whole thing? Quick pause in our story to remind you about novel nutrition. Enhance your reading sessions with our bespoke supplements. See if you can figure out which blend is our favorite. Oh, and just for Book TV listeners, use code BOOKTV at NovelNutrition.co for a special 20% discount. Now let's return to our story. Chapter 5 Camp Spartan, Arrington, Tennessee 9.28 p.m., February 27th There was a knock at the door. Cal lay sprawled on the leather couch in his suite at the lodge reading a W.E.B. Griffin novel his favorite stories about the Marine Corps. He wasn't expecting company, as evidenced by his attire, a pair of workout shorts and no shirt. Rolling off the couch and onto his feet, Cal padded to the door and looked through the peephole. It was Travis. Cal opened the door. Did you just get in? Yeah. It wasn't fun, but we made it down through the weather. You look like shit. Thanks. You mind if I come in? Cal swept his hand toward the spacious living area. How is the trip? You didn't tell me you were going. Travis shrugged, stripping his coat off and putting it on a leather lounger. It was fine. Mind if I grab a nightcap? Cal motioned to the well-stocked bar slightly concerned by his cousin's uncharacteristic restraint. Of the two, Travis was the more outgoing. Always had been. After pouring a drink, the seal kicked his shoes off and sat on the couch, careful to keep from spilling the full glass. Cal sat across from him in an armchair. You gonna tell me what's going on? Travis sipped his drink, thinking. I got an offer from the president. What kind of an offer? 
another sip and a pause. He wants me to come work for him. A bark of a laugh escaped Cal's mouth. What? You're kidding. Travis shook his head. He needs help, Cal. Help doing what? Getting the country deeper in debt? The dirty blonde CEO rested the glass on his knee and stared at his younger cousin. Come on, Cal, be serious. I am being serious, Trav. What on God's green earth would he want you to do for him? He's getting it from all sides. Doesn't know who to trust. Frankly, he's pretty down right now. You should have heard what Marge said. What did she say? She said he should take a look in the mirror and grow a pair. Another laugh. Maybe she's right. Cal clasped his hands behind his head, leaning back. He's our friend, Cal. You wouldn't leave me to be fed to the wolves, would you? Of course not, but you're not the president. What exactly does he want you to do? He wants me to be his chief of staff. What happened to the old chief of staff? He's still there, but Brandon doesn't trust him. Said he treats him like a child. Well, he is the youngest president in history. Cut the crap, Cal. I need to talk to you about this. The smile left Cal's face. Travis was right. Brandon Zimmer was a friend, even if he was the president. Are you really thinking about doing it? Marge doesn't think I should. Why not? SSI, for one. But she also thinks Zimmer's on his way out. Cal sat up. What do you mean? She thinks he'll either burn out or get forced to go. But he was appointed fairly. Who would do something like that? Take your pick. I'll bet there are a bunch of politicians who are pissed about Brandon being in office. After thinking about it on the way home, I think she's right. If I was in line to be president and some rookie cut in line, you know how ruthless those bastards are. Cal knew. If it were up to him, every crooked politician would be burned at the stake. And you want to jump in the middle of this with him? I don't know if I have a choice. They sat quietly, Travis taking bigger and bigger gulps from his cocktail. Cal thought it was noble of his cousin to even consider the president's request, but he was afraid of the repercussions. Wait, why did Marge go with you? Why didn't you take me or Dunn? Travis shook the ice in the bottom of the empty glass. The president invited her to come. The hair on the back of Cal's neck stood on end. And? He wants her to come to D.C. and help with appointing new cabinet members when the time is right. Cal's eyes went wide. He can't fucking do that. That's two of our top leaders, goddammit. His cousin shrugged. That's what Marge said. She's already called to tell the president no. She said she'd do what she could to help from here. Well, that's a relief. What about you? 
I think I'm going to do it. Geez, Trav, have you thought about the company, our company? Who will run things while you're off saving the president? Travis held out his tumbler. You will. Washington, D.C. Senator Milton Southgate hadn't left his office since concluding the meeting with Congressman McKnight. He'd canceled dinner plans with a friend, citing the worsening weather. In reality, Senator Southgate had too much to think about. Unmoving in his dimly lit cocoon, a Civil War-era clock ticking on the corner of his desk, the veteran politician replayed McKnight's accusations over and over. At first he'd scoffed at the idea, but as the evidence stacked up precariously in the air between the two bureaucrats, Southgate found himself coming to believe what the popular Florida congressman was saying. I've looked into this myself, Senator. Trust me when I tell you that I would not have brought this to you unless I honestly believed it was true. I don't want our country hurt by yet another scandal. While the cautious senator didn't believe McKnight's motives, of which he was still curious, the revelations had stirred something in Southgate. The statesman from Arizona believed in order. He thought the new distractions of technology and social media a fad. He'd never carried a personal cell phone and never would. More than anything, he believed in his party's place in the history of the United States of America. As a teenager, he'd had books on great Democrats like FDR and JFK. He never developed the charisma of such men, but Southgate believed in his soul that the Democratic Party was the party of the future, anointed from heaven to lead the United States and one day a world under one flag. Senator Milton Southgate didn't want to be president and never had. He preferred to work behind the scenes to safeguard the dream, to take care of the people. His social welfare programs had helped untold thousands, if not millions, to find a better life. He truly believed that. He'd known since the moment he heard the last president's speech appointing Zimmer to his post that a solution would present itself to right the wrong. The idea lay hidden, never once uttered from Southgate's lips. Instead, he showered the new president with wisdom and insight. Now, now he had a way out, a way to replace a piece of the Capitol chessboard. He sat in his darkened office until after the antique grandfather clock in the foyer clanged midnight. Now was not the time for sleep. Now was the time for action. Chapter 6 Camp Spartan, Arrington, Tennessee 5.25 a.m., February 28th Cal pushed himself through the snowdrift, his quads screaming in protest. The gale slapped him in the face, telling him to turn back. He ignored the pain and ran on toward the rising sun. Sleep had never come after the conversation with Travis, which had ended with Cal flat out refusing to take over as CEO. I'm too young. I've got a lot going on right now. 
You don't think I was too young when your dad died? Come on, Cal. This is your company. It's time to man up and do what you need to do. The memory burned almost as much as the strain. Plumes of white breath trailed behind, mimicking his feelings. Cal had never thought of SSI as his company. Sure, it was his dad's company and he was the sole heir, but the company had grown larger than his father probably ever would have imagined. Neil Patel's division alone easily financed the extracurricular activities Cal and his teams planned daily, off the official record, of course, and there were millions to spare. Cal knew he was smart. He'd always had the mind to lead, but his heart couldn't be shackled to a boardroom. He preferred to be where he was, with his men, taking the fight to the enemy. He'd left the Marine Corps, but the Marines still lived in him. I'm a warrior, not a businessman. Travis was going to Washington, and Cal would soon be strapped to a desk, making sales calls, schmoozing with potential clients, and reading endless reams of financial reports. The thought made Cal want to gag. Or was it the harsh pace he was pushing, snow caking his feet in calves? He finally stopped at a small rise overlooking the campus, breathing deeply. It was the company's cemetery. Five headstones poked their ivory tops above the snow. Reverently, Cal cleared the white powder from each of the tombstones, reading the inscriptions, remembering the men, his men, who had died on the snow-covered mountain in Wyoming. The others had been buried near their respective families, his good friend Brian Ramirez among them. The final stone took the most time, not because it was larger. In fact, it was the smallest of the bunch. To Cal, it was sacred ground, a place where he'd made a promise not long ago to the beautiful girl who now lay six feet beneath that very spot. His Jessica. What should I do, Jess? Only the slight wind against his running jacket answered, ruffling his collar. He stood thinking, wondering, hoping the answer would come. Chapter 7 Rayburn House Office Building, Washington, D.C. 7.46 a.m., February 28th. Did you get me my job back? Santos Lockwood stood in front of Congressman McKnight's desk, his hands behind his back, perspiring despite the frigid temperature Tony always kept. McKnight didn't look up from his phone where he was tweeting a picture he'd taken of the snow on the way into work with the description, Hashtag Snow Day, attached. I'm working on it. How's your hand? It's too bad about that shark. Big motherfucker. Lockwood tensed. The doctor stitched it up and it's healing. It would take a while to get used to the loss of his pinky and ring finger. 
Santos winced as he unconsciously flexed his injured appendage. At least McKnight had the courtesy to do it to his non-writing hand. Good. I hope it doesn't come between you and the ladies. Lockwood took the mocking, used to it after years of knowing McKnight. The rest of the trip in Mexico had been more of a lesson in threats than a political junket. Every time they'd been alone together, the congressman had made some remark about having his family killed or cutting off his balls. The next second, he'd return to his affable self, whining and dining with the real estate developer who'd invited them down to his new resort. What do you need me to do until we know? Santos Lockwood was ready to be away from his unofficial boss. The duplicity was exhausting to be around, not to mention downright dangerous. McKnight was always careful about what he said in his own office, especially after the recent scandal involving the NSA's snooping. Come over to my place tonight and we'll talk. Lockwood nodded and went for the door. Already on thin ice, he was happy just to have something to offer his old friend. He could only imagine what would happen if his usefulness ran out. Lockwood shuddered at the thought, closing the door quietly behind him. Senator Milton Southgate had been waiting for thirty-seven minutes. He counted down the seconds as he watched sheets of ice blow past the elegantly framed window. A beat before the thirty-eighth minute ticked in Southgate's head, Secretary of State Jeffrey Dryberg burst into the room, his wavy red hair curled neatly behind his ears. Loud and boisterous by nature, Dryberg was not what one would think of as a particularly good candidate for the diplomatic post. What the casual observer didn't know was that the trim figure with ruddy cheeks whose family hailed from the hills of Scotland and was rumored to be a descendant of William Wallace himself, was a certified genius. After graduating with three majors from Harvard, Dryberg had gone on to become the youngest partner in the history of New York's prestigious Kleinman, Shaver, and Bosch law firm, waging war against corporate America one win after another. But what had made him sort of a folk hero, a man of the people, was that he'd founded and run a popular microbrewery, Dryberg Draft, all while rising through the ranks of New York City's best attorneys. Cunning and overwhelming in public engagement and election battles, Dryberg was a natural politician, the self-appointed voice of the working man. His first run for public office had been a dare on a celebratory night thrown by a drunk partner in Dryberg's law firm. He'd won in overwhelming fashion, now having worn a path through the New York State House, through the U.S. Senate, and his current post. He had the pedigree Southgate needed to use. He also had the smell of the presidency already being touted as a hopeful should Zimmer not seek re-election. Senator Southgate, I'm sorry I'm so late. I know how much you appreciate punctuality. 
Dryberg always threw in a bit of a Scottish twinge when he was putting on a show. He liked to say that America was his home, but Scotland was his mother. I understand you're a very busy man, Mr. Secretary. Thank you for coming. Southgate hid his displeasure well, knowing that he needed Dryberg's full attention. Come on, Senator. Why don't you call me Jeff? You're twice my senior at least. The Secretary of State laughed at his own joke while the stoic senator bit back the bile in his throat. He'd never liked Jeffrey Dryberg, but he was open-minded enough to know that the younger generation enjoyed the show the Scot loved to put on. Only if you call me Milton. You've got a deal, Milton. Now what was so urgent that we both had to come out in this god-awful snow? Why don't we have a seat and I'll fill you in? Secretary of State Jeffrey Dryberg was an ambitious man. He'd fought his way up the ladder and meant to stay there. His first run for office had been a dare. Now politics was his life, the best game he'd ever played. Never having spent any private time with the Senate Majority Leader, he'd been intrigued by the Senator's invitation. Everyone in Washington knew Milton Southgate was a goody-two-shoes, always worried about appearances and doing the right thing. This ran in sharp contrast to Dryberg's public image. He was known as a high-flying, some would even say flamboyant, pauper-turned-politician who wasn't afraid to get in shouting matches. Dryberg had money he'd earned by hard work and toil, and he wasn't afraid to flaunt it, much to the dismay of frugal stalwarts like Senator Southgate. Privy to secrets most Americans would be shocked to hear, Jeffrey Dryberg was a man in the know. He'd made it his business to be intimate with every detail of every case he'd ever taken on. He still knew the recipe and process for the wide variety of beers being made by his famous microbrewery. That being said, nothing had prepared him for the story Senator Southgate methodically laid before him. And you're sure about this? Southgate nodded solemnly. I'm afraid so. I have my own people looking into it. Why can't you tell me where the information came from? If they told you, they told someone else. I'd hate for this to get out. My source assured me that I am the only one who knows. Now, let's talk about how we can contain the situation. Congressman Antonio McKnight scrolled through his phone, jumping from one social media app to another. He'd made it his business from day one in office to stay at the forefront of any technology that could bolster his image. The Republican Party was failing to capture young and minority voters, but McKnight was part of the new breed. Young, handsome, and into many of the things twenty-somethings were into, namely being online twenty-four-seven. Other than the former president— he had the most online followers of any U.S. politician. 
He wasn't married, so his nights were filled with cocktail parties and discreet liaisons. Early on, he'd learned to keep his private life private. Despite his near-constant use of technology, McKnight was diligent about security. If the last four years had taught him anything, it was that you never knew who was watching or listening. More than one cocky politician had seen years of work wiped away by a hacked cell phone or laptop. The phone on his desk chirped. McKnight tapped the speaker button without looking up. What's up? the congressman asked his secretary, a middle-aged woman named Linda, who was a better gatekeeper than a six-foot-six Samoan. Sir, Senator Southgate is on the line for you. Patch him through. Yes, sir. Seconds later, the call connected. Are you there, Senator? Good morning, Antonio. Good morning. I called to tell you that the investigation is progressing on our end. McKnight leaned back in his chair, smiling at the ceiling. That's good to hear. An extended moment of silence. Congressman, as I told you before, I will take care of this personally, and I would appreciate your discretion until we have a better idea of what we're dealing with. Not a problem. The last thing I want is to get in the middle of your business. If you need anything, please let me know. I will. The line went dead. McKnight knew the old man was by the book, that he was positively giddy that the senator had moved so quickly. He'd made a good decision taking it right to the top. McKnight silently congratulated himself, diverting his attention back to his last post that had already been shared on the web by over 100 followers in less than five minutes. Chapter 8 Springfield, Virginia, 11.15 a.m., February 28th Stevie, you want me to make you anything for breakfast? came the call from the kitchen. Former FBI Special Agent Steve Strickland, sweat-soaked, struggled to finish his last pull-up. Sausage and eggs! While Strickland hated the fact that he still lived at home, he couldn't complain about his mother's cooking. The widow waited on her only son, hand and foot. He nimbly dropped from the door jam pull-up bar onto the 80s-era burnt orange carpet, flexing his six-pack in the mirror. A couple jabs and a sweeping hook later, Strickland grabbed his olive-drab T-shirt, one of the last remnants of his time in the Marine Corps, and wiped his face. In the last two months, he'd had plenty of time to work out. He estimated that he'd put on at least five pounds of muscle, cutting his body fat to an acceptable eight percent. After getting kicked out of the FBI in December, quietly, of course, Strickland had at first taken his sorrows to the bottle, stewing in his misery on the lower level of his mother's modest brick split-level home. 
that had lasted for close to a month. Then something clicked. Overnight, Strickland gave up alcohol and refocused. He was a former FBI agent, experienced in internal affairs investigations. Lucky for Strickland that the Bureau had turned into a model of political correctness and allowed him to leave quietly, even providing a decent recommendation letter. It helped that Strickland had experience manipulating situations where he had to cover his own ass, a fact that his superiors took into account before his dismissal. No one wanted him as their enemy, or so he thought. If only things had gone differently. One day he was in the middle of the biggest investigation of his life, and then, just like that, his uncle, a popular congressman from Louisiana, was shot right in front of him. He didn't remember much after that. He never knew whether the alcohol or the blow to the back of his head had more to do with that, but he woke up on the steps of the Hoover Building, FBI headquarters, a group of administrative assistants pointing and taking his picture. That was a bad day. His superiors linked him to the crime with the help of certain unnamed witnesses, thus ending his FBI career. Strickland didn't blame himself. He never did. Once again, he'd been the victim of events outside of his control. Sure, he'd conducted an investigation outside his official duties, but he thought his initiative would be awarded, not condemned. They'd even made him sign paperwork promising to never divulge the information he'd already uncovered. Bullshit. That piece of paper had held his tongue for a month, but his ego wouldn't let it go. In his mind, there was one person responsible for his fall. One man who'd plagued his career in the Marine Corps and in the FBI. Every other idiot called the man a hero. He knew better. His nemesis was one of the unnamed sources that led to his disgrace. He knew that now. The same man torpedoed him as a platoon commander during his time in the Marines, making him look like an idiot in front of company and battalion commanders. Strickland walked over to his desk, eyes resting on the oversized corkboard, papers pinned neatly in groups. Smack dab in the middle was a picture of his nemesis, a man who had ruined his life, an enemy whose name made Strickland's blood boil. It was so unfair, but the tide would turn soon. Revenge would be sweet. And the best part? Strickland sneered. Cal Stokes didn't even know he was coming. Camp Spartan, Arrington, Tennessee Daniel Briggs, a former Marine sniper and Cal's right hand, adjusted the tie holding his blonde ponytail. What did you decide? Cal stared out the snow-encrusted window in his living room. I don't know. When does Travis need to know? He didn't say, but I'm sure he wants my answer soon. 
The man who SSI operators called Snake Eyes stood up and walked to the window. It's not all bad. Maybe it's time for a break. We've been running pretty hard. Cal and Daniel had forged a deep friendship over the preceding year. Rarely apart, the two Marines had planned and conducted countless operations on American soil. Sometimes they talked about it, how much their new profession was like a kid being given anything he wanted. They had the assets to do more than most federal agencies. To the warriors, it was the best of both worlds. Play with guns and take care of the good old U.S. of A. While Cal was more brash in his approach, the always stoic Daniel, Bible ever in hand, kept the train from derailing. He was the buffer to Cal's rage, the calming influence. Cal knew his weaknesses, his short temper and inability to keep his mouth shut and countless others. That was what bothered him about Travis's ultimatum. Not only was Cal the last person who wanted to run a large corporation, he was also introspective enough to know that his personality would not lend itself well to the daily grind of a CEO. I don't know what he's thinking. You couldn't pay me enough to work in D.C., said Cal. Even if Brandon asked you? He knows better than to ask me. Seriously, the only thing worse than me running SSI would be working on Capitol Hill. Daniel couldn't disagree. He probably knew Cal better than anyone. Cal's disdain for politicians could almost be compared to his hatred for terrorists and criminals. Could Dunn run the company? Todd Dunn was SSI's head of internal security and played a similar role for Travis Hayden that Daniel did for Cal. No, I asked. Dunn's probably not the right fit anyway. He's too good at what he does. Daniel felt for his friend. He knew Cal's sense of duty would probably win over. It was his company, after all. I don't see a way out, Cal. Cal huffed, shoulders slumping. He didn't want to let his cousin down, let alone the employees of SSI, but... Cal's head snapped up, eyes bright. I have an idea. Come on. Daniel turned in surprise, Cal already slipping his arms into the well-worn cold-weather coat. Where are we going? Cal grinned. I think I found a way out. Shaking his head at his boss's attitude swing, the sniper followed Cal out the door. Cal opened the conference door without knocking. Travis, Marge Haynes, Todd Dunn, Neil Patel, and Dr. Higgins were in the middle of a heated debate. Travis looked up, annoyance clearly etched in his scowl. Do you ever knock? Sometimes. Hey, I know how we can both get what we want. What are you talking about? Are you trying to weasel your way out again? 
Cal ignored the jab. Look, I know you think I'm the obvious choice to take over for you, but I don't think you've thought it through. Travis raised his hand. How many times do we have to talk about this, Cal? This is your company. We've got a lot of good people counting on us. Do you want to let them down? Of course not. That's why I don't think I'm the right fit. Closing his eyes, Travis dropped the paper he was holding onto the conference room table. Okay, you've got my attention. What do you propose? Cal smiled. I think Marge should be CEO. Chapter 9 Camp Spartan, Arrington, Tennessee 11.57 a.m., February 28th No one said a word after Cal's declaration, not even Marge the Hammer Haynes. Cal looked around the room. Can any of you give me a single reason that Marge can't take over? It's not that easy, Cal, said Travis. Why not? She's way more qualified than me, and she's already cleared for everything I am. She's still considering the president's invitation. No offense, Trav, but letting one of our leaders go is one thing. Two is fucking crazy. He does have a point, Travis, offered Dr. Higgins, finger tapping his chin slowly, considering. Travis turned to Haynes. What do you think? Haynes took a moment to respond. It is an intriguing offer. See, I knew it, exclaimed Cal. But I already have a lot on my plate. I'm not sure it's the best thing for the company. Do I need to remind you that I'm the only female employee at Stokes Security International? What will your teammates say? Cal laughed. Are you kidding? They fucking love you. It's not like you're an outsider. You're one of us. More than a few SSI operators had felt the hammer's raw skills on SSI's training mats over the years. If that weren't enough, she'd started training with the teams on the gun ranges and in the live fire complex. She'd even earned a well-deserved thumbs-up from Gaucho after a particularly brutal training exercise. That's one loca lady, he'd said. A huge compliment coming from the Mexican badass. Look, we need to look at this thing for what it is, a business. If we were a traditional corporation, would the board vote for a former Marine without even a college degree, or an attorney skilled in the art of courtroom battle and used to rubbing elbows with businessmen and politicians? The room digested Cal's words. Travis finally looked up. Well, Marge? What do you think? Haynes shrugged, nonplussed. If it's unanimous, I'll do it. The vote was unanimous, with not a dissenter in the group. Cal, you want to tell me what I should tell the president? asked Travis. Cal shrugged. That's not my job. I'm not the boss.
A grin was already plastered on his face. Travis lifted his hand, extending his middle finger. Okay, if we're going to do this, you get to come visit the president with me. But that was not a request, cuz. It's your idea, so you can help explain it to the president. Cal was trapped. Instead of stepping in one hole, he'd fallen the other way right into the viper's pit. Fine, but you're paying for us to fly first class. The White House President Brandon Zimmer shook the Japanese Prime Minister's hand, bowing slightly. I look forward to seeing you again. The Prime Minister left without a word, followed by his entourage. Zimmer walked to the fire. Who's next, Ellen? Ellen Hansen, the President's secretary, was another holdover from the last president. She looked at the calendar in her hands. You've got the next thirty minutes free for lunch, and then you have Secretary of State Dreiber get two o'clock. Zimmer held back a groan. He and Dryberg were roughly the same age, but something about the boisterous Secretary of State always annoyed him. Either way, he was stuck with the man for the foreseeable future. What's the meeting about? Ellen referenced the calendar. Updates on Ukraine, Iraq, and Syria. Is General McMillan joining us? He'd come to value the chairman of the Joint Chiefs' input. The Marine General had a way of distilling intelligence and operations that was both practical and insightful. Macmillan was an integral part of Zimmer's team. No, sir, I believe the General is in Afghanistan. Another wrinkle. Since taking the oath of office, Zimmer had made sure there was always a neutral party in attendance when he met with the charismatic Secretary of State. Zimmer knew his head of international affairs had ambitions higher than his current post. He wasn't the only one in Washington who wanted to be president, but no one else was as close to the throne as Dryberg. President Zimmer was finishing the last bite of his club sandwich when Secretary of State Jeffrey Dryberg stepped into the Oval Office. I'm sorry, Mr. President. Ellen said you were ready for me. Zimmer wiped his mouth with a monogrammed napkin. That's okay, Jeff. I just finished. He stood to greet his guest, somewhat perturbed by the fact that Dryberg was tall enough to look down on him. I'm glad we finally get some time one-on-one, -on -one, sir. Sometimes it's nice to have a meeting without all those nosy staffers. Dryberg flashed his brilliant smile, shaking the president's hand. I've been meaning to have a sit-down with you, but as you can imagine, it's been a bit of a zoo around here. Dryberg laughed. I can only imagine, Mr. President. He threw in a wink for effect. How about I give you a quick rundown and then we'll chat? Zimmer tried to hide his surprise. Maybe he could have a working relationship with the man after all. Exactly twenty minutes later, Dryberg had concisely outlined the hot topics for the day, 
and answered the President's immediate concerns with precision. It seemed that they were on the same page. I've got to say, Jeff, I was a little concerned coming into this. How so, sir? To be honest, I thought you might be a bit less assertive on the international stage. Instead of being offended, Dryberg smiled. I understand. You'll have to remember that I serve at your discretion. Your predecessor, although a man of the people, could sometimes be, how to put it lightly, he could be a bit soft with foreign leaders. To his credit, he expected the best of people. As his Secretary of State, I was bound by his policy, not mine. Zimmer listened intently, wanting to get a full grasp of a possible new ally. And now? Dryberg went serious. My family comes from a country that was subjugated for centuries under the guise of familial trust. In many ways, the United Kingdom still controls Scotland. I am a student of history, Mr. President. I know that for every well-meaning politician there are five more jockeying for power behind the scenes. I had a good working relationship with your father, God rest his soul. He was a Democrat, but an American patriot, just like me. He knew the importance of a strong international stance. I had assumed, rightly I hope, that you were the same. I'll admit... A couple of years ago, I was a little more naive than I would have liked, but I've since come to have a better grasp of the truth. A smile returned to Dryberg's slightly freckled features. Then I'd say we're on the right path, Mr. President. I'm glad to hear that. I'm glad to say it, sir. Maybe if you really learn to trust me, one day you can tell me how it felt that day you fell into the presidency. This time, Dryberg's wink made Zimmer laugh. Chapter 10 Washington, D.C. 3.14 p.m., February 28th Senator Southgate sat tapping his index finger on his knee, mimicking the ticks of his great-grandfather's clock one of the few pieces the family had saved when Union cavalry ransacked their pastoral home in southern Kentucky. He hadn't moved in almost an hour. It was what he did, carefully weigh the pros and cons, ins and outs of an important move. He was slowly digesting the news he'd received from his contact in the Department of Homeland Security. It didn't look good. He hadn't found a smoking gun, but initial signs seemed to corroborate Congressman McKnight's accusations. Southgate had to tread lightly. Although the ascendance of the new president had at first shocked Americans, Zimmer's poll numbers were climbing. His voting record, while short in comparison to the veterans in town, spoke of a new type of Democrat, a man who could reach across the political aisle. His hand-picked team had done a masterful job at scheduling well-orchestrated events, further painting the young president into a modern-day JFK. 
doubt crept in. The good of his party and the American people were at the heart of Southgate's concerns. He didn't have the slightest ambition to be president, but he did crave order. McKnight's revelations had the potential of destroying much of what Southgate had worked to build over the last quarter of his political career. It didn't help that he couldn't get the former president on the phone, or the fact that Zimmer seemed less decisive than Southgate would have thought. While he didn't have anything concrete, now might be a perfect time to capitalize on the president's weakness, even if the help came from a Republican congressman. Meetings canceled due to the record-breaking storms. Southgate stared into the fire, ticking time, weighing his options and the fate of the new president. After a lingering kiss, McKnight rolled off of the naked intern with a grunt. Why don't you get cleaned up? The intern licked her lips beneath pouty eyes. You sure you don't want to go again? I've got work to do, honey. Maybe later, okay? The petite blonde took the hint and made her way to the bathroom while McKnight sat naked checking his email. He was waiting for something, anything, from Southgate. Not that he really needed the old man's help, but it would make his job easier. It would also keep McKnight out of the spotlight for the time being. He didn't want the attention just yet. A second later, his phone registered a new message. Anyone tracking his account would think it was just another message from a fan, but it wasn't. Utilizing the coded script he'd devised, McKnight smiled. He'd soon have enough proof to incriminate the president and give the Democrats a whopping black eye. Then, in the middle of the mayhem, a new leader could rise. A man seeking to give tired Americans, who were overwhelmingly skeptical of the jobs politicians were doing in Washington, something different. It wouldn't happen instantaneously, but McKnight was a patient man. Politics was a marathon, not a sprint. McKnight had his running shoes on and was ready to make his way to the front of the pack. As we close today's captivating episode on Book TV, don't forget to check out Novel Nutrition. Tailored for book lovers, our supplements are designed to complement your reading lifestyle. Use code BOOKTV for a 20% discount on your first order at novelnutrition.co. Enhance your reading experience with Novel Nutrition and don't forget that every purchase helps support an author.